Welcome to Inside Rosenberg and Estes. My name is George Shea. And in this episode, we're going to explore how New York City's real estate and marijuana markets intersect, providing insight for owners, brokers, and managing agents. To shed light on this issue, we have Adam Lindenbaum, member, and Harris Davidson, associate with Rosenberg and Estes. Adam and Harris recently appeared in The Real Deal, providing a broad overview on the issue. So we'll be able to get into a lot of the details. Adam, why don't you introduce yourself and perhaps you can give us the lay of the land on how illegal uses were treated prior to the legalization of cannabis. Sure. Thanks, George. Uh, so I, I've been a, a member at R&E in the litigation department for over 10 years and, and practicing uh, in other firms for about 10 years before that. And we have seen um, the RPAPL 715 deals with illegal use and immoral use of, uh, of real estate. Uh, so if you were an owner, and typically uh, this section was geared towards drugs and prostitution, it's, it's colloquially known as the body house law, uh, you would be given a notice by the district attorney and uh, told that landlord you must commence uh, illegal use holdover proceedings against your tenant because they have violated the law. Um, that section of law uh, talks about sections of the penal code and infractions uh, of those penal codes and convictions under those penal codes are presumptive evidence that the tenant is engaged in that illegal or immoral uh, use and that that's an actionable, um, uh, evictable offense. And that if the landlord doesn't commence such a proceeding or proceed diligently to completion, the, uh, the DA can take over that proceeding and make the landlord uh, a respondent in those eviction proceedings. Um, so there have been cases over the years that I've been involved in that have tried to expand the scope of what they call the body house law. Uh, there was a case where they tried to extend it to white collar crime. Uh, there were some legs with that in the beginning, but eventually that, that was dismissed, holding that it didn't uh, hold up. Uh, and then there were, I was personally involved with some cases with synthetic marijuana, which were not illegal under the penal code uh, because they were invented so quickly with these synthetic materials, but they were uh, against the Department of Health regulations, not illegal, but violations of administrative code. I had tried to pursue those kinds of evictions, but the courts were not looking at those kinds of cases favorably. So fast forward to where we are now with cannabis, uh, which was legalized in 2021 by the New York State Legislature. The, the DA was initially sending letters to owners uh, under the RPAPL 715 saying, you're engaged in illegal uh, activity. Uh, but then they said, well, no, it's, it's not illegal anymore. Well, you're selling it without a license. That may be a, a violation of the cannabis laws, but it's not illegal. And so rather than fight that fight, what happened was a, a series of new laws that the legislature and the New York City uh, Council enacted um, just recently. But, but I'll let Harris talk about that big change that happened in 2021. I want to introduce myself to our listeners. Uh, my name is Harris Davidson. I'm an associate at Rosenberg and Estes in the litigation department. 
And I come to this field by way as a former prosecutor in Miami-Dade County, where I prosecuted more than my fair share of drug offenses, marijuana, uh, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl. Uh, I've seen it all. And now I'm here trying to put that prior experience to good use for R&E's landlord clients. Lo and behold, Adam had a few clients that were coming across these issues with the illegal unlicensed smoke shops. Uh, and I've been here and learning the laws as they've been changing in New York. Uh, as Adam said, there was a big change in 2021. Um, everyone who's in the city is, is probably aware just by walking out on the sidewalk and smelling, you can know that there's a difference. Um, and what happened was is that the state passed the um, Marijuana Legalization Act that effectively decriminalized marijuana for folks who possess it in quantities that are lower than a sale or a distribution amount. Um, for the average person, that's, that's how the law has affected them. So you can no longer be arrested and taken to jail for having weed in your pocket. If you're on the sidewalk, you're in the subway, wherever. You can go to uh, Washington Square Park and smell the results of, of how that law has impacted everyday New Yorkers. For folks in our world, in the retail world, the real estate world, and the, the store you know, world, the way that this law has impacted people is that it created what's called the Office of Cannabis Management. And the office was charged with developing and implementing regulations for how marijuana was going to be sold legally in New York. So you have the use that's been decriminalized and it's now legal, but then the question is, how do folks who are using it, on the other hand, get legal marijuana? And that's the place where we find ourselves in. Office of Cannabis Management, called OCM, uh, was a little bit slow in rolling out their regulations, in part because this is a pretty new field. They were able to look, I think, to some part in what other states that had come before had done, like Colorado. But uh, New York is different. New York is always going to be a little bit more complex than other states. And there are a lot of interested stakeholders as well that needed to be heard by OCM. So you have this brew in the state of cannabis is now effectively decriminalized and, and, and legal if you have an individual use amount. So no one's afraid of getting arrested but you don't have an effective way yet of legally selling it because the OCM is not moving quickly enough with issuing these licenses and, and implementing the rules and procedures that are needed to legally sell weed. Um, and, you know, this is where we find ourselves, where our clients, our firm's clients, uh, as landlords start getting tenants that are not quite following the law, that are selling unlicensed marijuana. And and I, I understand that there was a um, Hudson Valley judge who issued a TRO that temporarily halted the licensing process. What's the status of that now? Are, are no licenses being issued right now? Or, or what's the status? It's a great, great question, George. Uh, you know, the licensing has come in fits and starts. The, the cannabis law that was passed in 2021 required the first license to be issued uh, by the end of 2022. So there was, um, there were, I believe, two or three licenses that were issued right at the end of the year. There have been a few more that have been issued. There have been a few, um, you know, temporary licenses that have been issued, and it's slowly started to come. 
one of the requirements that the OCM decided that they were going to, you know, put into their regulations is that in order to get a license, you needed to have some type of uh, justice involved ownership. Uh, in practice, what that has meant is that people who were previously incarcerated for felony possession of marijuana have been given preference for obtaining these licenses to legally distribute. That, you know, it's an honorable thing for them to want to do, for OCM to want to do. You can understand politically why that was pushed forward. This Hudson Valley case is a, is a group of disabled U.S. military veterans uh, who believe that they should be given preference. These are folks who are not prior convicted felons for marijuana, but who believe that because of their, their combat trauma experience, you know, use of marijuana for PTSD-related issues, that they should be given preference. Uh, and they convinced the judge in Hudson Valley that the licensing process, as outlined by the OCM, deprived them of their due process rights. Um, that case, as we last checked, is still still ongoing. Um, but you know, OCM is going to be able to pick up with the licensing as soon as it's resolved. There's really not an issue in terms of uh, the ability to issue licenses. It's more of just a timing thing, which gets us back to the problem that we've been in for the past few years of legal marijuana, but not enough legal places to sell it. Well, and and here's here's I'm a resident of New York City and. And I certainly have, have smelled it on the street everywhere. Um, my question is, it seems to me that this is being sold in all variety of locations. And I suspect um, many of those selling a marijuana don't have licenses. And so, Adam, could you, I mean, what's the landscape there? Is there any sense on, on um, how many of the shops selling it are, are not technically legal? And then what's the problem with renting to a cannabis shop? If you're a, if you're a property owner, I mean the vast majority of the retail locations that you see, and and the estimate of that number is wide ranging about uh, you know, but in the thousands uh, are not licensed, and it's created a huge uh, problem. And 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 there was, you know, this perfect void uh, in the retail landscape because in the one year or two years since cannabis was legalized. One year preceding to that, we had the onset of COVID. And with that was the decimation of the retail um, landscape in New York, creating so many vacancies. So here you have what appeared on the surface to be a perfect fill of that void. You had uh, uh, a, a decriminalized substance, a high demand for it, and owners who you know missed out on a year or two of revenue from their retail spaces, and it was a perfect plug uh, to fit in there, and that's that's why we have the number that we have because the void was there, and this business uh, moved into fill it seemingly with little downside at the time, uh, not aware of what what m was to come. Um, but there were problems. Uh, you know, the the marijuana is still a federally controlled substance, so notwithstanding that New York has legalized it, and I believe it. At least 20 other states have. Uh, at this point, it remains a controlled substance under federal law, which creates problems with insurance companies, creates problems with you know national banks, uh, banks that are conducting in interstate commerce, and so you know you see these shops proliferating uh, in in the Class B buildings, the buildings on the side streets, 
or, or single-use retail shop buildings, not in Class A buildings. Um, and and look, it, this this isn't a a wildly popular decision. New Yorkers can't agree on on anything. It seems, uh, you know, there there are definitely positive parts. You know, things about about marijuana being legalized. It alleviates the suffering of many people. Um, and, and, and some people believe that it's good, but others believe that it attracts a nuisance and there's more smoke and there's more throngs of people on crowding the sidewalks. And we don't have to debate here whether it's a good thing or not. But, um, you know, people started to complain once the proliferation of these shops, um, you know, came to be when that that covid void was filled. And but but from the perspective of a property owner, it seems to me that there are like a web of different laws, right? You have the federal laws, you have the state law, and then you have um, new statutes coming out. And, and then Adam, I, I, just following up on what you just did, I understand Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg put out a letter uh, like mentioning illegal trade. So it does, like there seems to be some confusion. I don't fully understand the, the letter on RPAPL 715.1. Like what was that? Right. So that that original statute that has been on the books uh, as part of the RPAPL for, for decades, um, they, they, they realized shortly after that letter was issued that the concept of legalized but unlicensed cannabis couldn't be wedged into the, the text of that statute as was written. And, they, and I think the, the various lawmaking bodies in the state and the city realized that that additional steps needed to be made in response to the complaints that people were making um, as a result of the uh, proliferation of cannabis shops. So that's what that that is the the new laws that we we've seen enacted earlier this year. Right. And so Harris, those you're talking Adam there about the new statutes. Is that right? Like Harris, why don't you explain some of the the new statutes and how they're affecting things? Definitely, I'd love to, George. So we've got three sets of statutes, really, that we're talking about, two of which were passed at uh, the state level in Albany in May, and one of which was passed by the New York City Council in July of 2023. All three are basically going after the same problem that we've been talking about of landlords renting to tenants that are operating unlicensed smoke shops. Um, Prior to the passage of these laws, city and state enforcement agencies had been targeting the tenants who are really, you know, we would argue, the ones who bear the ultimate reliability and responsibility here. The problem with targeting these tenants, of course, is that a lot of them are fly-by-night shops that will receive an order to shut down, and they'll shut down and disappear. And there's no way for the city to ever stop the unlicensed sale of marijuana because proprietors of these stores will just open up for the next vacant space that allows them to come in. It turns into a game of whack-a-mole. So these laws are intended to find a deeper pocket than the tenant's pocket, uh, which unfortunately for a lot of Rosenberg and Essis's clients means them, the landlords, the property owners, the managing agents, the people who are the ones who are signing the leases. So RPAPL 715A <clears throat> authorizes state enforcement agencies to commence eviction proceedings uh, under the framework of the original RPL, APL 715 
as, as Adam had said. Um, but instead of just being for illegal use, it's now clarified that that illegal use includes violations of penal law, section 222, and violations of cannabis law, article six, which are the specific uh, laws governing how you need to be licensed um, and how you can only have a certain quantifiable amount um, if you're going to be distributing it for profit. So the mechanism of this new law, 715A, is that you know the enforcement agencies, in addition to going after the tenants, can go after landlords. So if a landlord receives a notice that their tenant is violating these two underlying cannabis laws, and the landlord does not act expediently to take steps to remove the tenant from the premises, the city or state enforcement agencies can put the landlord on the same side of, of the V in a, in a case in New York, New York civil court and will treat the landlord as if they're in cahoots with the tenant. Um, this is obviously very problematic for landlords who are just trying to cover the rent rolls and are not involved in the sale of marijuana. They're just accepting funds on a monthly basis from a tenant. Um, and 715A, you know, the financial penalties are steep. It says that if a landlord is found to have been knowingly renting and accepting rent to a unlicensed cannabis uh, distributor, that they may be liable to pay in a fine three times the amount of that, that rent. So I want to I dig in on that a little. So the, the burden of this has been now placed squarely on the shoulders of the property owner. They can be fined. They can be, they're sort of alongside their tenant, whether or not they had anything to do with it. What is the time? Like, what is expeditious in terms of them acting on this? And have there been cases where um, they've taken action against the property owner? I mean, you know, it, clearly most property owners would now have a sense that this is an issue, but I can see some people being caught um, surprised. Yes, and that's the question that we're getting from all of our clients. Um, how quickly do I need to act? What do I need to do in order to make sure that I'm not penalized? Um, and the answer is, like all good legal questions, it depends. The statute says that landlords must act diligently and in good faith. Uh, in other points, it says that they have five days to respond to a notice that's been duly wow. given. But look, in, in, in real life, the court system doesn't act that quickly. So if a landlord receives a notice and they don't respond within five days, um, are they going to be held financially responsible for the conduct of their tenant? Probably not. So the advice that we've been giving to landlords is to move as quickly as possible, but to know that you're still dealing with the court system the end of the day. And the court systems are inherently slow and inherently not expeditious. But but to be clear, this is being enforced across the city. Is that right? Well, what we're seeing is is a little bit of a smattering of, of, of a bunch of things because uh, well, Harris talked about RPAPL 715A, which is on the state level. There's a corresponding section in the cannabis law uh, 16A, which gives uh, the state authority uh, to sue landlords for preliminary injunctions, uh, closure orders, TROs, and put a notice of pendency on property to, to sue not just 
the landlord and the tenant, but the real estate itself um, to to uh, attach the property uh, in, in in the litigation. And then there's a local law, uh, local law 107, which talks about um, uh, upon receiving such notice, monetary penalties against the landlord in substantial amounts, uh, $5,000 for the first instance and $10,000 uh, thereafter. So, you know, th there's this web of both state and local laws. And in connection with that, there are also numerous enforcement agencies authorized to act. We have seen uh, well, the, the attorney general is authorized to act. The Office of Cannabis Management is authorized to act. The NYPD and the DA in the city are authorized to act. And we've also seen instances where the Department of Taxation and Finance, in connection with the Office of Cannabis Management, have, have acted and piggybacked off one another because of the, the tax implications and burdens upon a license, the license sale of cannabis. And so the, the clear path to enforcing this one perceived wrong of sale of unlicensed cannabis, it's not clear how it's being enforced in Manhattan, where the majority of our practice is, and in the outer boroughs, and outside of New York City. So we've seen OCM uh, act within the city, um, and then we have that was in one Lower East Side client. And then we have another uh, client about five blocks away where the NYPD is active. And it's unclear to us exactly which authority, authorized governmental agency is going to act or whether they're all going to act. Um, and in what proceedings, you know, whether they're going to demand the eviction proceeding of RPAPL 715A, are they going to be content to just issue administrative uh, fines and uh, and collect the cash through um, a, a uh, with, you know environmental control board violation um, and we've also seen uh, which is another remedy on the books the the public nuisance abatement actions where the corporation council of New York City in connection with the NYPD will just run to court and get a TRO and shut these businesses down immediately it's a it's a very quick expedient remedy which has also been on the books for a long time and you know famously came uh, up with uh, the counterfeit goods in, in Chinatown um, but we've seen applied to the drug context also and for both of you you know it, it strikes me and this might not be the case that you know the the landlord has liability to the city and the state but also could run afoul of its tenant depending on a lease or depending on on what the the, the way the state is acting I'm not, I'm not sure of that but one way or another, the landlords obviously have a lot of concerns here. What, you know, what would you be advising a property owner who has um, a cannabis seller as a tenant or is considering it? I mean, f first of all, make sure your lease covers you. Uh, and if you're going to enter into a lease, uh, you know, make sure that compliance with laws, prohibited uses are uh, clearly defined. It's not just, you know, prohibiting the sale of marijuana, um, you know, but making sure that it's licensed, encouraging existing tenants to get licensed before uh, these agencies come knocking and issuing notices of, of violation. Um, and, and, you know, just making sure that you stay one step ahead of the game where you're being targeted for penalties for knowing violations, um, you know, and, and, and in the languages of the leases, 
and the uncertainties of litigation, we are able, we'll probably, we haven't received too many of these because this is all so new, but I anticipate that we will be able to work things out and give our clients breathing room either by prophylactically taking steps to enforce rights under a lease, working with tenants, advising them how they can get licensed, um, curbing their uses, uh, et cetera. So, you know, e each set of facts is going to be different, um, but we are encouraging clients to come contact us before the government agencies do. And Harris, could you tell us more about the notice of pendency? And also what happens if a sort of a uh, any shop uh, that a landlord has as a tenant just begins selling marijuana, a head shop, it could be anything. What, what, what's their uh, action then? So George, the notice of pendency is important for a lot of our clients because it's one of the things that the Cannabis Law 16A, which is one of the recently passed laws, allows the enforcement agencies to put on the property itself. Uh, unlike RPAPL 715A, Cannabis Law 16A allows the enforcement agency to proceed in rem against the property, regardless of if the tenant or the landlord show up in court to defend the action. Uh, if the city or the state agency is able to get relief from a judge and is allowed to place that notice of tenancy on the property, it can really cloud the title of the property for a landlord. So if they're trying to refinance or they're thinking about selling uh, and the broker runs a title report, it will show up that the notice of pendency has been placed as a result of the alleged illegal conduct of a tenant. And in a multi-tenant building, if it's lots of commercial tenants or mixed use with residential, um, one little issue like that can cause a lot of concern for uh, a landlord. To answer your, your other question, uh, George, you know, we get clients all the time asking us, how do I know if the, the tenant is doing this? Um, for most of these cases, it's pretty obvious. They're targeting retail customers on the sidewalk. They have big pot leaf flashing lights yeah. and uh, joint signs. Um, and it's, it's intended to bring customers in. These are not secretive stores, at least in our experience as lawyers, and then also people who, who work and live in Manhattan. Um, some cases that we've seen, the tenants were originally legitimate. It was a deli. Uh, and then because of this change in laws, they decided that they were going to start selling marijuana. It's a lot more profitable than just selling sandwiches. Um, I think the advice that we can give to our landlord clients is, as a result of these new laws that were passed in, in 2023, they can't turn a blind eye to the conduct of the tenant. Even if the lease says it's a deli, if they know that the tenant is selling marijuana, uh, it's, it, you know, they could be held responsible for continuing to collect rent after they become aware of that. Uh, clients who know that their tenants are selling and that they don't have licenses, or they're not sure if they have a license, they should speak with their brokers, they should speak with their lawyers, make sure that they're on the right side of the law here. Because the worst thing that could happen is it turns out that the marijuana leaf has been up on the store for a year and a half and the tenant uh, has been openly selling marijuana for that amount of time. And it's a lot harder for us as, a, as the lawyers for the landlord to say, we had no idea. Yeah. The other way, George, that, that landlords are receiving constructive notice 
is from complaints from residential tenants who live above these shops. Right. We've had clients say, uh, I, have, I have residential tenants who want to break their lease because they feel unsafe walking home at night with throngs of people outside the marijuana shop, um, you know, just, just lurking around and smoking. And I feel unsafe and I want to break my lease. Um, so besides the, the disruptions and, you know, the, the leasing uh, issues that that causes, um, arguably those residential tenants have causes of action for breach of the warranty of habitability for the landlord failing to provide a safe residence and failing to police its tenants and uh, that tenant's um, uh, patrons and failing to enforce the terms of the commercial lease that probably by the letter of the lease, you know, prohibits um, that kind of conduct and from the commercial tenants customers from causing that kind of nuisance, but by not uh, enforcing it, causing a, uh, a, a condition that is dangerous, that's unfit for habitation for the upstairs residential tenants and that kind of claim uh, raised say as a defense to a non-payment proceeding or some other action uh, uh, initiated on behalf of a tenant or defense initiated on behalf of a tenant could also put the landlord on, on constructive notice. What would your final word be for property owners on this subject? I think that the most important thing is to be diligent and to always be aware of what's happening in your space. So if you have an existing tenant that you're concerned is violating the law, Make sure that you're staying on top of, of that tenant. Reach out to your lawyer if you have questions as to whether the tenant is licensed or not, and if they're violating their lease or not. Um, and if you're looking to rent new space to a new tenant, you know, make sure as well that you've spoken with your lawyer to guarantee that the lease has the provisions that will protect you in the event that the tenant decides that they're going to switch their business model and start selling cannabis. Okay. Thank you both for your insight on this and contact information for Adam and Harris is included with this podcast. Don't hesitate to call if you're looking into this or if you have any questions and we thank everybody.